Well, as I mentioned last week, we're going to be looking today at the subject of biblical masculinity and femininity. And as this is a very controversial and often misunderstood topic, uh, we're going to begin by just sort of laying the foundation of the biblical teaching on the subject before we narrow our focus at the end to look more specifically uh, at the instructions in Proverbs for men and women, respectively. I do want to begin with a section in Proverbs, though. In chapter 8, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll look at this. Uh, We looked at this section several weeks ago, but I just want to briefly revisit it now. This is one of those passages in the book of Proverbs in which personified wisdom is speaking. In Proverbs 8, beginning with verse 12, says, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. And the whole rest of this section, wisdom is the voice here. Wisdom is speaking. Drop down to verse uh, 22, and we'll find that wisdom says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him. Like a master workman, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of men. This section of Proverbs teaches us that God established the world in wisdom. Part of what it means, then, to be wise is to live in light of reality, to understand the world as it really is, how things really function and then to live in light of those realities that we know to be true. And since Scripture provides for us words from the Creator of our world, this is the best way to learn wisdom. And so then, as we consider the subject of masculinity and femininity, it would make sense for us, of course, to start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis 1, we're going to kind of walk through the first two chapters of Genesis And uh, notice a few things as we go. First of all, Genesis 1, verse 1, the Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice, heavens and earth. You have a pair of opposites there. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. Notice again, light and darkness. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. So you have again evening and morning, you have night and day, these pairs of opposites. Verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So again, you have dry land And you have water, you have earth and sea. Verse 11, God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. You have vegetables and fruits. And again, God even distinguishes between those two, the ones that have seeds and uh, seeds inside of them. And so it's another pair that God distinguishes between. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heaven to separate the day from the night. 
Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be, let their, I'm sorry, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Notice verse 16, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And so there you have sun and moon. Verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And so now you have swimming creatures contrasted with flying creatures. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. By the way, notice in verse 26 that word dominion. We're going to come back to that. But man was to have dominion over everything else that God had created. And so here on the sixth day, you have God creating land animals and humanity. And again, contrasting the two, the major difference being you know, we all are land animals in a sense that we're, you know, creatures that walk on the earth, but humanity is uniquely made in God's image. And that's expounded upon in verse 27, which says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, male and female. God created two genders on purpose with intent If God wanted us all to be the same and have the same abilities and perform the same roles, he wouldn't have made a man and a woman. He could have made two men or he could have made two women and had them split like cells or something to reproduce. But instead, God in his infinite wisdom decided humanity was going to be made up of males and females. And he hardwired those two genders with differences, different propensities, different strengths to perform different functions. Rather than fighting against how God designed us, we would be wise to lean into that design and be the kinds of men and women that God created us to be. That is what leads us to find the most fulfillment in our lives, and that is what will lead to human flourishing. And that is basically the whole sermon this morning. It doesn't mean you get to go home yet. That's just a nutshell for you in the beginning. Uh, As we saw reading through Genesis 1, God created many pairs. You saw day and night, sun and moon, light and darkness, sea uh, and dry ground, male and female. It would be silly to suggest that because there are these differences, that one is inherently better than the other, and yet that's so often what we try to do. Now let me ask you, which is better, the land or the water? Well, that's a stupid question. Uh, Both are needed. Both are necessary. Both perform important functions in our world. Both are important in their respective places. If all of the world were sea, it would not be good. Uh, Likewise, if the sun was always shining and it was never dark, or if the sun was never shining and it was always dark, that would cause problems. These things work together and they complement each other. And the same is true of males and females. Men and women serve different and complementary purposes in family, society, and in the church. And so trying to flatten out those distinctions between men and women and make us all the same exact kind of person, that leads to chaos and depression, not to human flourishing. And if you want a very clear example of that, just look at something like the suicide rates among those who experience gender confusion, especially those who are encouraged uh, in that delusion. By God's design, men and women together 
reflect the image of God and fulfill the purpose of God for humanity in distinct and harmonious ways. This leads to the topic of complementarianism. And if that's not a word you're familiar with, uh, I apologize. If it sounds funny to you, you can blame uh, Wayne Grudem and John Piper. They came up with it. Uh, But back in the 80s, there was this term that was invented called complementarianism. And that's the term uh, that I would use to describe what our church believes. In fact, uh, that word is almost in our church documents. It's, It's kind of alluded to there. There has long been in America a movement known as egalitarianism. Maybe you've heard of that one. Uh, Egal, the French word for equal, and so the idea of egalitarianism was that men and women are equal, equal basically in every way, Uh, which sounds unobjectionable at first. I mean, we all want to say that, but the term egalitarian is loaded with a lot more than simply equality of value or worth. Basically, egalitarians argue that anything a man can do, a woman can do, anything a woman can do, a man can do. And the two should be basically exactly the same in terms of their roles in society, in terms of their authority, and so forth in every area of life. Men and women, basically the same, should be treated exactly the same. That's the egalitarian mindset. Complementarianism is the idea that while both men and women are equally made in the image of God, and thus we have equal value, equal worth in God's sight, we are still different. God designed us with distinctions that are hardwired in us. And those differences complement each other. That's the idea of complementarianism. And as I said, we are a complementarian church. We're not an egalitarian church. Here's a sentence, for example, uh, from our church's statement of faith, which says, Men and women were created with equal value and with complementary roles and qualities. Now, this leads to the question, what are the differences? What are the kinds of things that differentiate men from women? If we're going to say that men and women should function in complementary, harmonious roles, not having the exact same roles, what exactly are those differences? Or maybe to consider it from another angle, just imagine uh, maybe a six-year-old child walks up to you and asks you the question, what makes a man a man? Or what does it mean to be a lady. Think of how you would answer that question. I'm going to try to answer that in three primary ways, Uh, maybe four kind of if you want to differentiate more. Four ways. Men and women are in the design of God have differences, number one, biologically, number two, different roles or functions, number three, different traits or characteristics, and lastly, different appearances. First, biology. Obviously, that's the starting point. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates male and female, and that's clearly alluding to the differences biologically. Men have XY chromosomes. Women have two X chromosomes. Women can get pregnant. Men cannot. This used to be totally uncontroversial, uh, but the sermon will probably get kicked off of YouTube simply for me saying that today. At the most basic biological level, men and women are different. And by the way, no amount of surgery will ever make that distinction go away. You cannot change your gender. We can dig up bones of people who lived a thousand years ago and determine if we're looking at a male arm or a female arm. It's that intrinsic. And so creating fake genital changes, uh, that doesn't do anything about what you are. It doesn't change who you are inside. Because even with those external markers being uh, really attempting to be reversed, still, down to the very cells of your body, you are either male or female. Men and women's brains function differently. Our bone structures are different. The hormones our bodies produce are different. It's not merely an external difference that you can look at and see. We are different at every level of physiology. But leaving aside biology, as hopefully nobody here is confused about that, uh, let's move on to talk about the roles that men and women should have and the difference in role or function that we see in Scripture. And again, here the logical place to start is with Genesis chapter 2. This is a more detailed account of the creation of mankind. Genesis 1, it just sort of says, God created man, male and female, and kind of leaves it at that. Genesis 2, we get a little bit more of an explanation of that process of creating mankind. 
So Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So at this point, there's no Eve yet. Okay, just Adam. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Notice that. The very first man, Adam, is given tasks. Take care of this garden. Till the ground. Work. Provide for yourself food. Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We're going to get back to that idea of the forbidden fruit in a minute. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So here Adam is being given another task, name the animals. And as we said, God gave Adam the responsibility to take dominion over the world. He said, you're in charge. Uh, We'll get into that more in a second. But part of that was naming the animals. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Adam was tasked with taking dominion over the world. We saw that in verse 26 of chapter 1. God told the man that he had created, you are to rule the world as a representative of God. That's what it means to image God. Uh, Humans are to take dominion over the lands, over the animals. We are to cultivate the earth harnessing its potential. That was Adam's role. And so the tasks that he was given, again, before Eve was even created, they make sense. They fit with that role. He's to uh, take charge of the Garden of Eden, work it, till the ground, uh, be in charge of that. He's to uh, name the animals. Again, you see a role there of leadership and decision-making that Adam is being put into. Eve was then created to help Adam, uh, obviously to bear children as well. That comes later. But twice in those few verses, God expressly states that Eve was being created to be a helper for the man. Now, do you see a difference there in the role for men and women? Of course you do. It's obvious. It's just right there. Now, you might not like it. Uh, you might think it's unfair. But let's just table that for a minute. And for now, be honest and admit that God clearly sets things up right from the start that there's a difference in the roles and the functions that Adam and Eve have and how they are to relate to each other. Now, we're not quite done with Genesis. Let's look quickly at chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, which says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees, uh, the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The Lord, uh, sorry, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice verse 9. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now that's interesting. He doesn't say, humans, where are you? He specifically calls for Adam. Verse 10, Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now we'll see in a minute, Adam's about to blame his wife for the whole thing, but notice God calls to him first and he begins to question Adam. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of, that, uh, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So notice there the punishments that are given to Adam and Eve. Eve's punishments were, first of all, pain in childbirth. Secondly, competition in marriage. The roles of men and women preceded this, okay? Just like Adam had to work the ground before this, the difference is now it's going to be hard. The ground's not going to produce as easily. You're going to have to sweat and toil to provide for yourself. And whereas before sin entered the world, Eve willingly submitted to Adam's authority and both parties functioned harmoniously in their respective roles, now God says the woman's desire will be contrary to her husband but he will still rule over her. In other words, there's going to be a conflict there that never existed before. It's going to become difficult to get along in the marriage. Verse 20 says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And notice there also that the man is actually the one who gives Eve her name. God doesn't name Eve. Adam does. And as the leader, Adam chooses this name for his wife. And certainly he was kind here. Uh, naming her the mother of all living. That's what Eve means. He could have named her, you know, first sinner or big dummy or something like that. Uh, but instead, he's nice. He says, mother of all living. So this first sin was one of rebellion. A lot of people wonder, what's the big deal? Who cares if they eat a fruit? Why is that such a problem? Well, it's the sin of rebellion. The serpent told Eve that this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would make them wise. And so taking the fruit represented the choice of the humans to reject the authority of God and seize for themselves control. They wanted control of their own lives. They wanted to be their own God. They wanted to define good and evil on their own terms. The serpent told Eve she could become like God. She could rule her life instead of submitting to God's rule over her. And so the sin was that of rebellion. Taking the fruit was rejecting God's authority. By the way, that's exactly what egalitarianism does. Egalitarianism says, I don't like what God has said on this issue. I don't want to obey his commands because they don't make sense to me. They don't seem right to me. So I'm going to reach up and grab that fruit. I'm going to start making my own decisions. I'll be the judge of what is right and wrong. That is exactly what is happening when you reject the biblical teaching on this subject and decide to just believe whatever you want and function however you want. One more question before we leave the Genesis 3 story. Why is Adam blamed for the first sin? Have you ever wondered that? As you read throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, uh, Adam is always pretty much blamed for being the first sinner. And you think, well, wait a minute, he wasn't the first sinner, Eve was. Why is it that the Bible says things like, by one man, sin entered the world. Through Adam's sin, we're all cursed. Why is he held responsible for what technically Eve did first? Well, the answer is because he's the leader. 
That's part of what leadership is, taking responsibility for those under your leadership. The buck stops with him. And so there's the first clear difference in role that we see between men and women. Men were created to be in that leadership role. Women were created to be in the supporting role as helpers. Now, we've been conditioned by our modern American culture to think that this is a really bad thing. And this really started in America with the feminist movement. Some of the points of the feminist movement uh, were correct. Men, in some situations, were misusing and abusing their authority, and that's always been a problem. But the solution isn't for women to take over the role of the man. The solution is for men to lead and lead well without being abusive or domineering. But instead, our culture has decided to swing the pendulum so far in the other direction that today we don't even know the difference between men and women. A hundred years ago, nobody was confused about there being a difference, a clear difference between the genders because it was so obvious. Everybody knew what a man was and everybody knew what a woman was. Then with the rise of feminism in the West, the roles and functions of men and women in society, in the family, and even in some churches was blurred. And the end result of that is the transgender movement. And really, we should have seen that coming. Because we diminish and flatten out the differences between us, we try to make both genders identical in every way, of course, the next generation is going to begin to wonder if there's any difference at all. But scripturally, if we just let the Bible shape our thinking and show us the differences, the roles that God created us for as men and women, the first clear difference is in terms of leadership. And we'll see this played out in various ways all throughout Scripture, uh, none of which is surprising. It's just a very clear and consistent pattern worked out in a hundred different ways. And so as we move through these, we're going to look at a few other passages in the Old and New Testament. What I'm basically arguing for is what I would call broad complementarianism. I didn't come up with that term, uh, but it's, it's one that I think is very useful. Meaning, when we say broad complementarianism, what that means is that it's not simply the case that women shouldn't be pastors and men can be, as though that's just sort of a random rule that God came up with. A lot of complementarianisms basically believe that's what this is all about. Uh, rather, as we'll see, that is just one of many applications of the complementarian design of God. Again, back to the question, what makes a woman a woman? If somebody asked you that, if a young child asked you that, hopefully you wouldn't answer by saying, well, you see, Johnny, a woman is someone who can't pastor a church and a man is someone who can. Uh, that's silly. Obviously, there has to be something deeper, something more there to this idea of complementary roles than just that one specific application. Yet again, in many complementarian churches, that's sort of the vibe. Uh, it's almost like men and women, exactly the same, all the same strengths and weaknesses, and then we sort of apologetically slip in the fact, oh yeah, we only allow men in leadership here in this church, but there's not really a reason for that. What I'm arguing for is something that is more far-reaching, that men and women in many areas of life should perform different roles for the good of the family, the church, and society as a whole. First, in the family. As you read the Bible, it's just obvious that men were the leaders of their homes. Uh, here is one really good example of godly male headship, Joshua 24, verse 14. Joshua says to the people, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before, beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice that last phrase. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In other words, Joshua is saying, I'm going to make this decision for me and for my household. That's leadership. And as we'll see in the New Testament uh, as well, there's many examples of this. Uh, for example, we saw in our study of Acts, the Philippian jailer, uh, when he is converted, Paul says to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and your household. It was just assumed that, of course, your household will follow your leadership. Uh, let's look at a few specific examples on this, on authority and submission within the home. Uh, there are many, many passages on this subject. But first, Colossians 3.18, uh, 
Uh, Very simply, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Uh, First question, verse 18, why is that fitting? Why is it that Paul says, well, of course, this is what should be done. This should be obvious. It's fitting that the wives would submit to their husbands. Well, because that's the design. If we understand and accept that God made Adam and Eve differently on purpose with a different function and role in mind, of course it makes sense. It fits that design that wives would submit to their husbands and husbands would lead the home. Notice also the admonition to husbands. Uh, Just because wives are to be in a supporting role and you are to lead your family doesn't give you permission to be a domineering jerk. And so immediately Paul follows it up by saying, don't be harsh. (laughs) Men are to lead lovingly. Uh, Let's see what Peter has to say about this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So here we're talking about even a uh, Christian wife and an unbelieving husband. Still, Peter says, be subject to them. And they'll be won by your conduct when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 3 Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, jewelry, uh, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So pretty much identical to what Paul says in Colossians. One more. Ephesians 5, verse 22 and following, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then notice, right after saying that, Paul follows it up. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So clearly, again, there's a difference between men and women in the home. And just because some men have led their families poorly, have been abusive with their authority, that doesn't mean we throw out the design. The solution to abusive authority isn't no authority. It's godly, loving authority, where men lead, but they do so with love and consideration for those under their responsibility. So that's the role of men and women in the family. Now let's transition to look at the church. And guess what? Same thing here. Nothing surprising, given what we've already seen. Men are to lead the church. Now, one of the most countercultural aspects of Jesus' ministry was his treatment of women, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, it's highlighted. In that culture of Jesus' day, women were treated very much as second-class citizens. Uh, Men did not eat with the women. Uh, Men didn't really speak much to women. Certainly, they didn't treat them with very much respect. Yet Jesus did. Jesus elevated the status of women in society. He spoke to women often, which surprised them. Uh, Read John 4, the account of the woman at the well. And Jesus begins to speak to her, and she responds by saying, why are you even talking to me? It was that uncommon of a thing. He treated women with dignity and respect. At times, Jesus even touched women who were ceremonially unclean, which was a very controversial thing to the Jews. But when it came time for Jesus to choose his 12 apostles, he chose 12 men on purpose. He chose men to be the leaders of the New Testament church. And so still, Jesus affirmed, even in this church, you know, New Testament era, that men are to lead and that women are designed for a supporting and helping role. 
Uh, Consider also the qualifications for pastors and overseers of churches. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that would be what we call a pastor, someone who's kind of the leader of a church, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Notice, it's just assumed that we're talking about men here. He just sort of slips it in there, husband of one wife. So not a polygamist man, which was very common in that culture. Uh, But it's just an assumption that, of course, we're talking about men here being put in the positions of leadership in the church. Uh, Verse 3, again, giving these qualifications of overseers of a church, he's not to be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So right there, Paul affirms that men are to lead their households, and men who lead their households well, and obviously fit all of the other qualifications, are to be the types of people who are chosen to lead churches. And just in case you still have any questions about whether or not there might be a place for women to step into the role of pastoring or leading churches, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes explicitly, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So you see in these verses, very clear difference in role between men and women in the church. Teachers and authority figures in the church are to be men, qualified men, but men nonetheless. Women are to submit to the authority of the leaders of the church. They are not to try to take those positions of authority for themselves. And notice Paul's reasoning. It's because Adam was formed first, then Eve. In other words, he grounds this practice, this rule of men leading the churches in the created order. Paul is saying this was part of the design of God from the very start. Adam was created to lead, to take dominion. Eve was created to come alongside and be a helper for Adam. Now, there is a role in biblical churches for women to teach other women in the church. So women teaching men in the church, bad thing. Women teaching other women, nothing wrong there. Uh, Titus chapter 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You just can't get away from this pattern. Even in that passage of women in the church taking a teaching role of other women, you still see they're supposed to teach the other women to be submissive to their own husbands. Women are not to be leading churches. Qualified men are. Uh, Lots of women were involved, very heavily involved, in New Testament churches in Scripture. We saw that all throughout our study of the uh, book of Acts. Uh, You see that often in Paul's epistles that he mentions specific men and women that were his co-laborers in the faith, uh, helping as they started churches, helping spread the gospel, even helping uh, teaching in certain roles. But they were not pastors. They were not apostles. They were not leaders of the church. One more passage on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, Let the women keep silence in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Here again, I don't think we're talking about just having a conversation in church. I'm not saying you should walk in, you know, just be completely quiet. Uh, No, we're talking here about in the context of teaching, prophesying in the church. And basically, women in the church are to learn in submission. If they have a question, or you could interpret that as if they have a challenge, if they disagree with something that's taught, they are to ask their husbands, because the husband is ultimately supposed to be the leader of the home. And so do you see, at this point, the clear distinction in role between men and women? Now, if it's clear at this point, which I think it's unavoidably clear, then we have two options. Option number one is to think that God just hates women, and that's the conclusion that a lot of people come to. Uh, They read passages like this, 
They encounter this biblical teaching for the first time, and they think, well, God just prefers men. God thinks women are useless. But then you look at how God treats various women in Scripture, how he esteems them highly. I think of people, for example, like Esther, Ruth, Abigail, Elizabeth, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Priscilla. All throughout the Bible, God clearly shows favor and love towards many women. So if God doesn't hate women, why is there this clear pattern throughout the Bible? Well, here's the other option. God loves people, male and female, and he created us to function in these different roles with different attitudes and postures on purpose because he is wise and he probably knows better than we do what's good for us in our homes, in our churches, and in our societies. In other words, the differences between us are beneficial for all of us. Just imagine if everybody on earth were a dude. Okay, forget reproduction for a minute. Imagine kids grow on trees or something. So that's solved. But think about a world in which all of the humans on earth are men. Uh, Well, if all of us were men, half the kids would starve because moms are way better at thinking ahead, being attentive to the needs of their children. People would be cruel and angry and out of control because often it is a woman who helps an aggressive young man to become domesticated, to calm down a little bit. Uh, They marry them, and they basically help them to mature emotionally. And so God knew what he was doing when he made two different kinds of humans. He knew that together we would be better. He knew that kids would need a mom and a dad. And yes, in some situations, you don't have that ideal. You do the best you can. You try to find maybe a father figure for your children to spend time with, have that male influence. But in general... It is just best for children to have a maternal influence and a father figure in the home. You need both because both provide different, again, complementary benefits to the child. And the same is true in society. You need both men and women to function in the roles that they were designed for. We complement each other when we are both living in accord with our God-given roles instead of fighting against them. By the way, not just preaching at the women here today. I think guys need to think about this probably a lot more than women do. Certainly, women need to think about how you're doing in your role as a godly lady. That's certainly true. But men, you need to step it up. You need to learn to lead, take responsibility, grow the heck up, get a job, learn how to work long, hard hours, provide, be productive with your life, Don't be passive. Don't be someone who has to be taken care of if you're an adult. Go make something of yourself. And I'm thankful in this church we do have good examples of this kind of masculinity, working hard to provide. It's good for you as a man to push your limits and to do hard things. See, the biblical pattern that we've seen is really instructive for all of us, whether we're men or women. And the main instruction in our culture may not be so much for women to sit down, but for men to stand up. I think our culture has maybe more of a problem right now with that. We have dads who are absent or aloof. Men who get a girl pregnant and then leave instead of taking responsibility and helping to provide for and raise their child. We've got a lot of moms in our society right now who are working full-time jobs trying to raise kids on their own while their loser boyfriend stays home playing video games all day or watching sports all day, contributing almost nothing to the family. It's happening all over Chicago, all over Gary, all over this area. I see it all the time. Women working themselves to death and not really being able to raise their kids well because the men in their lives won't step up and be men. And it's killing our society may not be so in this church. Ladies, learn to be ladylike. And men, for goodness sake, drop the excuses and be a man. One more category in terms of roles. Uh, Government leaders and military roles. Here we're talking more about society more broadly. So we've talked about the home. We've talked about the church. Let's talk more broadly about society in general. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 12. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, your guides mislead you, 
and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. If you read this in the context, Isaiah is saying that this is a sign of judgment when women are in positions ruling over a people in society. And here's where we get into the conversation, uh, of course, about Deborah in the Old Testament that always comes up in this. Yes, one and only one of the judges that God chose to lead Israel was in fact a lady named Deborah. And that wasn't a good thing. Read Judges 4. It was during a time of God's judgment against Israel that Deborah was in leadership. It was a sign of how far Israel had fallen. The fact that there were no men stepping up. That's the whole point of this story with Barak, where he's being a coward and then a woman ends up killing, you know, with the tent peg. You all know that story. Uh, all of that is that same time period illustrating that there was a lack of male leadership in Israel at this time. And by the way, even as a judge, Deborah didn't lead the military. That would have been unthinkable in the biblical imagination. Men fight wars, obviously. Okay, if we're going to be complementarian in any real sense, I would think that this at least should be a clear point of agreement between us. Of course, men were designed by God to defend and protect in times of military conflict and not women. And so while Deborah had a degree of leadership for a time over Israel, she wasn't leading the army of Israel, Barak was. Aside from Deborah, you will never find in anywhere in Scripture God choosing a woman to lead Israel as a judge or as a queen. You know, you have all the kings in Israel. In all of Israel and Judah's history, you'll find dozens of kings. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. There's only two queens, one over Israel, one over Judah in the Old Testament. The first, Athaliah. She was a wicked lady who slaughtered most of her own grandsons in order to eradicate the royal family and seize control of Judah. The only other queen was over Israel, and that was Queen Jezebel. So, despite how controversial this statement is, I'm going to say it anyway, and I want you just to consider it. Uh, consider if it lines up with what we've seen in the biblical pattern. I don't believe it's a good thing that we are seeing more and more women serving in leadership roles in our nation. I think it says something very negative about our society, that men are not standing up and leading well, and women are filling those roles. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If we're talking about a particular person, a lady running for political office, say, might be a far better option than a particular man, depending on the person. For example, I would vote for a lady who defended the rights of the unborn, who stood against transgenderism and so forth, over a man who was on the wrong side of those issues. Uh, but all things being equal, the pattern that I see in Scripture is that God has designed men to stand up and lead, and he has not designed women for that role. Okay, that's enough about the roles. Let's talk about traits or characteristics. Here's where things get more difficult. What does it mean for us to act like a man? What does it mean to act like a lady? What characteristics or behaviors are more masculine or more feminine? Often we have a stereotype in our minds, like, for example, if you're, not, if you're, if you're a real man, you know, you grow a beard and you fish and you hunt and you like football and you like camping or whatever. Now, obviously, those are stereotypes and they can sometimes go too far. You can certainly be a manly man and not be into football. But I think it's clearly a mistake. Uh, while I think it's a mistake to make those stereotypes into ironclad rules, like you're not a man unless you check all of these boxes, I think it's also a mistake to throw them out altogether. There is something to them. Maybe not all of them need to apply to you, but if you're a man and you list out the you know 10 most common uh, characteristics or stereotypes for manly men, and you don't fit into any of them, that might be worth asking some questions about. Uh, here's one of the best passages I know of to kind of differentiate the traits, the characteristics, or even the temperaments, demeanors of men and women. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 7, Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
gentle, loving, affectionate. Those are the characteristics that Paul says is like a mother toward her children. Now notice verse 11 of the same chapter. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So exhorting, uh, encouraging, charging. That's the characteristic of a father toward his children. So right there in those passages, you see a different temperament between men and women. In both cases, we're talking about parents with their children. And yet, Paul says women are gentle and affectionate to their children. Men exhort and charge their children. There's a very clear difference there. Now, don't take this to the extreme. Paul isn't saying men can never be gentle. Only women should be. That's a feminine characteristic. Well, of course not. Paul says, in fact, I was gentle among you like a woman with her children. So he's literally saying, I was displaying gentleness towards you. So apparently it's okay for men at times to be gentle. And yet, when he's looking for a comparison, gentleness he illustrates as a mother toward her children. And instruction, charging, exhorting is illustrated by fathers toward their children. There's a demeanor of masculinity and femininity that may apply somewhat to both genders at times, but it's still more characteristic of one than the other. So teeing off of that passage then, it seems that gentleness is at least one trait that is more feminine and strength is a trait that is more associated with masculinity. More on strength in a moment, we'll get there. But generally speaking, dads, as Paul is saying here, provide a harder discipline. Mothers provide more nurturing and compassion. And by the way, again, both of those things are needed. Both of those are needed for children to thrive. That isn't just my opinion. That also isn't even just a scriptural concept. Secular studies have proven that children succeed better, whether you're talking about education or wealth or even crime statistics. Children turn out better with a male and a female influence in the home. And again, I think God knew what he was doing when he designed us in these different complementary ways. Uh, back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. Peter writes to women and says, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. Gentleness, quiet spirit, beauty. These are feminine traits which are precious in God's sight. And note that God doesn't dislike women. God loves women. He designed women to be this, to fit in this role. And a woman who honors the Lord by living in this way is a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. For masculine traits then, clearly strength, courage, those would be at the top of the list. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong. Pretty simple. Uh, guys, learn to develop strength of character. Learn to be tough. Play sports, lift weights, climb mountains, chop wood, uh, work a physical job, maybe join the military. Whatever your thing is, toughness is a masculine trait that should be cultivated in men. Male aggression is a good thing. It can be useful if harnessed in the right ways. We don't want a society of weak men. And in many ways, that's what we have in the West today. We have males who don't know how to act like men and be strong. Here's God speaking to Job in chapter 38, verse 3, where he says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Dress for action like a man. That's what it means to be a man. God says, toughen up. Have courage be strong. These are masculine traits that God designed men to have. Lastly, you've talked about biological differences, talked about different roles that men and women are to have in various spheres of life. <clears throat> We've talked about different traits or characteristics that are either more masculine or more feminine. Now let's talk about appearance. Looking like a man or a woman. And yes, the Bible does address this subject. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. 
For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Pretty straightforward. Ladies, dress like a lady. Men, dress like a man. Uh, And notice that word abomination. Very strong language that God uses. God does not like when men and women flatten out our differences. He wants us to lean into how he made us. Uh, Here's another example on the, the issue of appearance from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for her covering. It's interesting in this passage that Paul says nature itself teaches us this, meaning this should be obvious. A woman with long, flowing, beautiful hair, that's a glory to her. A man with long, flowing, beautiful hair is shameful. So men look like men. Women look like women. And never before in America has this simple concept been more needed. You know what it means to dress in a masculine or feminine way. I don't think I need to get into specifics. We all understand that. But simply the principle is all of us ought to be presenting ourselves as the gender that God made us to be. Okay, that's enough introduction. Let's get into Proverbs. Uh, Let me remind you that I let you out very early last week. So uh, we're going to work through these quickly, don't worry. But let's look at what this book of wisdom says to men and women in particular. It does address some temptations that both genders can fall into uh, especially. First of all, to the women, we'll cover the women first, then we'll go to men. Okay, so to the women, Proverbs says, first of all, Proverbs 11, verse 22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. So beauty is a good thing. It's a feminine trait. It's something God made uh, women to be. God obviously made women beautiful. But Proverbs says, don't become so absorbed with your beauty that that's all there is to you. Strive to be a woman of substance, a wise lady, not just a beautiful lady. Next, Proverbs urges women not to be loud and quarrelsome. Here are several Proverbs all making the same point. Uh, Proverbs has a lot to say about loud women, and none of it is good. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 13, A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. So in verse 13, you have a quarreling wife who is compared to a continual dripping of rain. In verse 14, a prudent wife is said to be a gift from God. And this comparison of quarreling in the home, a fighting sort of bickering wife, to a continual dripping on a rainy day is something that's actually repeated a few times in the book of Proverbs. For example, chapter 27, verse 15. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. In other words, a woman like this that Proverbs is describing is out of control. You can't get her to stop, just like you can't stop the wind or you can't hold oil in your hand. Proverbs 21, verse 9, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. In case you didn't get the point, chapter 25, verse 24, exactly word for word the same statement. It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Quarrelsome wives make life miserable in the home. That's the obvious idea of that statement. Uh, One more, chapter 21, verse 19 says, It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Now think about that for a second. How bad would it be to be stranded out in the middle of the desert? No water, no food. That's pretty bad. That's not a very good situation. And yet Proverbs says that's better than living with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Fretful there meaning easily provoked. A woman who gets upset over everything. And so the general instruction for women in Proverbs is not to be loud, not to be quarrelsome, to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, there is one passage that goes into some detail about the ideal portrait. Those are all kind of negative passages. Sorry, ladies. I'll hit the guys in a minute. Uh, but there, there is one passage that goes at length about the kind of ideal portrait of a godly, virtuous woman. That's chapter 31. Uh, we'll close the instructions 
to women with this section, and I'll leave you ladies maybe to look this one up and uh, read through it on your own. I won't comment too much on it. But the very last chapter of Proverbs says this, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. There you see kind of that helper role uh, back in Genesis being explained here. Verse 13, She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land, meaning her husband is respected because of the conduct of this godly wife. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Such a great phrase. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. And beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of your hands and let her works praise her in the gates. What jumps out as you read this passage is that hard work and productivity is a quality of a virtuous woman. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness. She's working. She's producing for the good of the family. She's even, in this case, buying a field and growing plants and earning income, selling things. Uh, growing food, tending the home well, all while maintaining a kindness and a wisdom in the way that she speaks. So that's kind of the ideal portrait that Proverbs provides of an excellent wife. Now to the men. First, Proverbs says in chapter 20, verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. I don't want to belabor the point. There's many Proverbs we could look at on this. Uh, but And we've already kind of stressed this a bit in the sermon. But men need to be strong. They need to step up. Again, it's encouraged here in Proverbs. It is your glory as a young man to be strong, to use your strength as a positive force, working, providing, defending. And then the splendor of the old man is his gray hair, which in Proverbs is a symbol of wisdom, uh, that we should be passing wisdom on to the next generation. Now, if we're looking specifically for instructions that Proverbs gives to men in particular, uh, and in particular, temptations to avoid. So for the women, the main temptation was being loud, quarrelsome, that sort of thing. For the men, by far, the main instruction in Proverbs is to be sexually pure, to avoid temptations, to be faithful to your wife. Obviously, God knows this is something that men in particular struggle with. We're visual creatures. God has made women beautiful. And so Satan tries to use that good desire that God has given us and tries to get us to fulfill it outside of the covenant of marriage. And because this is an issue, especially that men struggle with, Proverbs says a lot to men on this topic. Uh, There's far more than we could possibly look at today. Uh, Very large sections of Proverbs. We're going to have to have a separate subject just on that topic to cover them all. Uh, But here is just one, one section of Proverbs on this, Proverbs 6, verse 20 and following. My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty 
in your heart. Do not let let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Uh, Again, this is just one of literally dozens of passages in Proverbs on the issue of sexual purity. Obviously, this is one of the main sins that men struggle with. And Proverbs 6 says that sexual sin has the potential, men, to ruin your life. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does this destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. His disgrace will not be wiped away. And so Proverbs instructs wise men to run from these temptations. Follow the example of Joseph in Genesis and flee temptation to sin. Verse 25 even says, don't even desire in your heart. Don't let her capture uh, you. And so to recap then, God has made men and women differently by design. We function best in family life, in churches, and in society when we lean into that design instead of resisting it. Men are called to be strong, to lead and love their families, and to be faithful to their wives. Not to abuse their authority in any of these spheres of leadership, whether it is the church, the home, or in society, but to lovingly lead with strength and courage. Women, then, are called to be helpers who support the leadership of godly men. They are not to be idle, but productive. And, of course, there's no higher calling for a wife than to bear children and to raise them with the nurturing love that only a mother can provide. Women are to be characterized by gentleness beauty, and a quiet spirit, not quarrelsome or challenging to the authorities that God has placed in their lives. And when both men and women fulfill their roles properly, everyone benefits. When men stand up and take responsibility to lead, and when women joyfully embrace their supporting roles, only then can humanity flourish in this world that God has created. Let's pray together.